Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. All right, how is everyone doing tonight? Welcome, welcome. Happy, happy 2020. Uh, welcome to the, the first fantastic fiction reading of, of this year. Uh, thank you all for coming. It's, uh, we love to see a, a, a crowded bar. Uh, my name is Matthew Kressel, and I host this series with Ellen Datlow. Uh, KGB Fantastic Fiction is every third Wednesday of the month. There's never a cover charge. It's always free. All we ask is... What? Buy drinks. Buy drinks. Buy drinks. Buy drinks. Hard or soft. Tip your bartenders. Support the bar. You support the series. The series keeps going forever. The bar keeps going forever. Everybody's happy. And you're hydrated, right? So, yeah. Um, we have a... I always forget to mention this, but we have a podcast. So if you can't come to the reading, kgbfantasticfiction.org. Go to click on the link for the podcast. We have recordings of all the past readings going back about four years. Um, and then it's also on iTunes and whatnot. So uh, yeah, check that out if you can. Um, just a brief announcements about our upcoming readings. Uh, next month, February 19th, we have James Patrick Kelly and P. Deli Clark. Yay! March 18th, Robert Levy and Daniel Brown. Yay! April 15th, Clay McLeod Chapman and our favorite guests. TVA, all right. May 20th, Alana C. Myers. Uh, June 17th, N.K. Jemison and Kenneth Schneier. July 15th, Mike Allen and Benjamin Rosenbaum. August 19th, Michael Liebling. So we have a, a great year lined up for, for you guys, so we hope you will join us for that. Um, like I said, uh, our website is kgbfantasticfiction.org. We have a mailing list. We send two or three emails a month just reminding you of the reading series. So if you want to uh, just be informed, um, I have very close friends who have known me for over a decade. are like, I didn't know there was a reading tonight. And I said, there's a fucking mailing list. <laughs> but yes, if you want to join, you can. Um, all right. So any other announcements that I've, I've forgotten? No, I think that's it. Um, all right, so uh, that's right. Uh, someone asked me if there are books for sale. Unfortunately, there are not. Uh, we used to have, um, we went through several booksellers, and the last one, no, we have, the last one, uh, I think we made, I don't know, three or $400 in one night, which I was like, that's a, that's a pretty good. They're like, that's not enough. We can't meet our margins. I was like, okay. Um, unfortunately, you know, we, we don't have a bookseller here, but, um, you, you know, there, there's, 
there's something called I heard it's called the internet, and so if you like the book, you can you know you can go on your phones and whatnot, and, and hopefully buy it, and um, you know have the author sign the back of your phone, right? <laughs> um, uh, all right. So our first author, our first reader tonight is Cassandra Koch. Cassandra is a scriptwriter at Ubisoft Montreal. Her fiction has been nominated for the Locus Award and the British Fantasy Award. And her game writing has won a German Game Award. You can find her short stories in places like the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, Lightspeed, and Tor.com. Her novella, Nothing But Blackened Teeth, is coming out from Nightfire, the new Tor horror imprint in 2021. Here's the fall down on me. Okay, wait, sorry. This is kind of tilting. I'll keep my hand here. I can't keep my hand here. So. Alright, this is the first time I've read from a physical book, so please excuse me while I freak out over the cameras <laughs> and over flipping pages. I'm going to read the first chapter from the novella that was just mentioned. How the fuck are you this rich? I took in the old vestibule, the wood ceiling that domed our heads. Time etched itself into the shape and stretch of the Heian mansion, its presence apparent in even the texture of the crumbling dark. It felt profane to see the place like this, without curators to chaperone us, no one to say do not touch and be careful. This was all before the word for such things existed. The villa could finance its desecration lock, stock, no question, and do so without self-reproach was symptomatic of our fundamental differences. He shrugged, smile cocked like the sure thing that was his whole life. I'm, come on, it's a wedding gift. They're supposed to be extravagant. Extravagant is matching Rolex watches. Extravagant, I slowed down for effect, taking time between each syllable, is a honeymoon trip to Hawaii. This on the other hand, is this is beyond absurd, dude. You flew us all to Japan, first class, and then rented the fucking Imperial Palace, or it's <laughs> not a palace, it's just a mansion, and I didn't rent the building per se. Just got us permits to spend a few nights here. Oh, like this makes this any less ridiculous? Stop, 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 don't finish. I get it, I get it. Philip dropped his suitcases at the door and palmed the back of his neck, looking sheepish. His varsity jacket, still perfectly fitted to his broad quarterback frame, blazed indigo and yellow where it caught the sun. In the dust, the letters of his name were guilt and glory and good stitching. Poster boy perfect, everyone craved him like a vice. Seriously though, it's no big deal. No big deal, he says, fucking billionaires. Cat. Have you ever cannonballed into a coal lake? The shock of an old memory is kind of like that. Every neuron singing a bright Hosanna, here we are. You forgot about us, but we didn't forget about you. Only one other person had ever said my name that way. Is Lynn coming? I licked the corner of a tooth, no comment. You could just about smell the cream on the lip of Philip's grin, though. 
I try not to cringe, to wince, beset by a zootra of sudden emotions. I hadn't spoken to Lynn since before I checked myself into the hospital for terminal ennui. Exhaustion so acute, it couldn't be sanitized with sleep. Couldn't be remedied by anything but a twist of rope tucked tight. The doctors kept me for six days and then sent me home, pockets stuffed with pills and appointments and placards advocating the commandments of safer living. I spent six months doing the work, a shut-in committed to the betterment of self, university and my study of Japanese literature shelved temporarily. When I came out, there was a wedding in a world so seamlessly closed up around the space where I stood. You'd think I was never there in the first place. Mm. A door thumped shut, and we both jumped, turned like cocks. All my grief reeled somewhere else. I swear, if that moment wasn't magic, wasn't everything that is right and good, Nothing else in the world is allowed to call itself beautiful. It was perfect. A hallmark commercial in freeze frame, autumn leaves swirling against a backdrop of beach and white setter, god rays drooping between the boughs. Fias and Nadia emerging, arms looped together, eyes only for each other, smiling so hard that all I wanted to do was promised them that forever will always, eternally, unchangingly be just like this. Sunama Yutsumai, oh my god, I cannot pronounce half the things I write. <laughs> <laughs> there was a phrase, it makes sense, you'll find it in the book, I'm ju just going to skip it. <laughs> my head jackknifed up. There it was. The stutter of a girl's voice, sweet despite its coarseness like a square of fabric worn ragged, like a sound carried on the last breath of a failing record player. A hallucination. It had to be. It needed to be. You heard something spooky? Said Fuller. I shrunk down a smile into play. Yeah, there's a headless lady in the air right there who says that she killed herself because he never called. You shouldn't ghost people, dude. It's bad manners. His doriality wicked away his own expression tripping over old memories. Hey, look, if you're still mad about, it's old news. I shook my head, old and buried. I'm still sorry, I stiffened. You said that already. I know, but that shit I did, that wasn't cool. You and me, I, I should have found a better way of ending things and his hands fluttered up and fell in time with the backbeat of his confession. Philip's expression cracked with a guilt he held for years like reliquary. This wasn't the first time we had this conversation. This wasn't even the 10th, the 30th. Truth was, I hated that he still felt guilty. It wasn't charitable, but apologies don't exonerate this sinner, only compels graciousness from his recipient. The words each time they came so repetitive that I could tune the clock to their angst saw through me. You can't move forward when someone keeps dragging you back. I trapped the tip of my tongue between my teeth, bit down and exhaled through the sting. Oh, news, I said. I'm so sorry. <sighs> your punishment, I guess, is dealing with bad puns forever. I'll take it. Philip made a bassoon noise deep in his lungs, a kind of laugh, and traded his timberlands for the pair of slippers he'd bought 
at a souvenir shop at the airport. It cost him too much, but the attendant, her lipstick game sharp as a paper cut, had thrown in her number, and Philippa was foes for the wolves in girl skin clothing. Long as you promise you don't spook the ghosts. In another life, I had been brave. Growing up where we did, back in the melting pot of Malaysia, down in the tropics where the mangroves spread dense as myths, you knew to look for ghosts. Superstition was a compass. It steered your attention through thin alleys, led your eyes to crosswalks filthy with makeshift shrines, offerings, appeasements scattered by traffic. The five of us spent years in restless pilgrimage, searching for the holy dead in Kuala Lumpur. Every haunted house, every abandoned hospital, every storm drained that held a body like a girl's final prayer, we went through them all. And I was always in the vanguard, torchlight in hand, eager to show the way. Things change. A breeze slouched through the decaying shoji screens, lavender, mildew, sandalwood, and rotting incense. Some of the pa paper panels were peeling in strips, others gnawed to the still vividly lacquered wood, but the tatami mantling the floor. There was so much, too much of it everywhere, more than even at Hayan's noble's house should hold, and all of it was pristine, store-bought fresh even. When the century should have chewed the straw to mulch, the sight of it itched under my skin, like someone had fed those small black picnic ants through the veins somehow, got them to spread out under the thin layer of dermis, got them to start digging. I shut it. It was possible that someone come in to renovate, maybe someone who decided that if the manor was going to house five idiot foreigners, they might as well make it a bit more livable. But the interior didn't smell like it had people here, not for a long, long time. And it smelled instead like such old buildings do, green and damp and dark and hungry, hollow as a stomach that forgotten what it was like to eat. Vice whistled and answered, yeah, this is a real deal. My man, Philip, you're a gentleman in six quarters. What's nothing? Philip bared a bright, fierce grin at the happy couple. Just some good old-fashioned luck and the family money put to great use. You don't ever quit about inheritance, do you? Said Fais. Smile only as far as the spokes of his cheeks, eyes flat. He cupped an arm around Nadia's waist. We know you're rich, Philip. Come on, dude. That wasn't what I was trying to say. Arms spread. Body language open as a house with no doors. You couldn't hate Philip for long. But Vice was trying. Besides, my money is your money. Brothers to the end, you know. Nadia was taller, duskier than Vice, part Bengali, part Telugu. Legs like stilts, a smile like a Christmas miracle. And when she laughed low like a note in a solo's long throat, it was as if she had been the one to teach the world the sound. Nadia laid long fingers atop the jut of Philip's shoulder and bowed her head precociously regal. Don't fight, both of you. Not today. Who's fighting? Vice had a radio voice. 
an easy listening tenor, just about self of prime time warning. Nothing some hard living couldn't fix, some good cigarettes and bad whiskey. He wasn't much of anything except doughier than ever. Not fat, not that there was anything wrong with that, but glutinous, almost soft as good clay. Beauty and her unfinished pottery, half molded, still slick. The tips of Fias's hair jutting out at the neat, dewed with sweat. I felt an immediate guilt at an unkind observation. Fias was my best friend, and he'd done more than his share, talking Nadia down from walling me out. She and I made eye contact as the boys bantered, their voices prickling. Like the hackles of a Doberman, short and stark, animosity panting between the niceness, and Nadia's expression congealed with dislike. I stroked a hand over my arm and tried to keep my smile on. The muscle in Nadia's jaw went rigid as she cracked her face into a similar configuration, her small tense mineral bracketed with impatience. I didn't think you were actually going to come, not after everything you had to say about the two of us. Courtesy velveted her voice. Nadia peeled from Fais and strode across the room, closing the distance between us two inches too much. I could smell her, roses and sweet cardamom. You two weren't happy, I said, hands burrowed into my pockets, slight backward lean to the axis of my spine. I'm glad that you figured out your differences. By the time you were at each other's throats, Nadia had almost three inches on me and levered that to her advantage looming. Your insistence that we break up didn't help. I didn't insist anything. I heard my voice constrict. The rad registers narrowed so much. Every syllable caught it was crushed together into a slurry. I just thought, you nearly cost me everything, Nadia said. Still staccato in her rage. I had both of your interests at heart. Are you sure? Her expression shaded with pity. I glanced at the boys. Where are you hoping to get Fias back? We had dated, if you could call it that. Eight weeks, no chemistry, not even a kiss. And had we been older, our confidence less flimsy, less dependent on the perceived temperature of our reputations, we have known to end it sooner. Something came out of that, Elise, a friendship. Guilt bruised, gestated in the shambles of a stillborn romance. But a friendship, nonetheless. The light deepened in the house, blued where it broke in the corridors. Fucking sure, Ben, and Jesus, I don't want your man. I told her with as much detachment as I could scrounge, not wanting to sell five short, not after all of this. It's been years since we were together, and I don't know what more you want from me. I've apologized. I've tried to make it up to you. Nadia let a corner of her lips sweater. You could have stayed home. Yeah, well. The sentence emptied into a surprise flare of noises as the two guys, men barely, and by definition rather than practice, their egos still too molded, came tumbling back from the periphery. Philip had Fias laughingly mounted on his shoulder. How firemen carry with the latter's elbow stabbed into the divot of Philip's collarbone. Fias, he at first looked like he might have been grinning through the debacle, but the way his skin pulled up from his teeth, that's a difference. It was a grimace, 
barred tea for Shreen by a membrane of decorum. Please put my husband down, Nadia fluted, reaching for her groom-to-be. I can handle it. A snarling comeback without an anchor in fact. Philip could have kept fires suspended forever, but he relented as Nadia curved a shoulder against him, arms raised like a supplicant. He set fires down and took a languid step back, thumbs hooked to his belt buckle. His grin still easy as he pleased. Jackass, said Fies, dusting the indignity from himself. So, tell me about this place, Philip, said Nadia, voice bellowing in volume, filling the room, the house in its dark. Tell me this isn't secretly Matsui Castle, because I'll kill myself if it is. I heard they buried a dancing girl in the walls, and the castle shakes if anyone even thinks about dancing near it. The manor seemed to breathe in, drinking her promise. I could tell we all noticed it all at once, when instead of hightailing it, we bent our heads like it was a baptism. The housewife hold you to that. I blurred it before I could stop myself in the sheer wrongness of the statement, the weird puppyish earnestness in its jump from my throat made me cringe. A long year I spent making acquaintances with the demons inside you, each new day a fresh covenant. It does things to you. More specifically, it undoes things inside you. To have to barter for the bravery to go outside, pick up the phone, spend 10 minutes assured in the upward trajectory of your recovery, that the appointments were enough, that you can be enough, that one day this will be enough to make things okay again. All those things change you. Still, no one looked asking. If anything, the words lit something in their expressions. The last light of the day, etching their faces in rough shadows. Nadia held my gaze, her eyes cold black water. Luckily, Philip stretched like a dog, long and lazy completely unselfconscious, scratched behind his ear a small crooking his lips. But this isn't Matsui Castle. Fias patted Nadia's arm. Nah, not even Philip could rent out a place like that. Philip tried on a bashman, complete with an honest to God, ah shucks those scuffing. But it didn't work. At this point he'd been homecoming king, class valedictorian, Debate captain, chess, wonderkin, every type of impressive a boy could hope to be. King of kings in a palace of princes. Even when they try, guys like him can't do self-effacing. But it can be good sports. This is better. I rolled up my luggage against a pillar, slouched carefully against the wood. Despite everything, I was warming to the enthusiasm, partially because it was so much easier to go along with it. Less lonely, too. Media's all about the gospel of the lone wolf. But the truth is we're all just sheep. But what is this exactly, said Fies, aromaticalist when love was a mandrel in his deliberation. His fingers mangled Nadia's wrist and his smile creased with worry. Well, Philip got to the word, unstrung it over 20 seconds. My guy wouldn't give me a name. He said he didn't want anything on record just in case. Could have just told you over the phone, said Fies. 
Philip tapped the side of a finger to his temple. Didn't want it to be a he said, they said thing either. He was a stickler for the rules. I guess it's cultural, said Fies, full of knowing. His mother was Japanese, small framed and smallest. Makes sense. We have a permit, though, for this, right? Said Nadia, a wobble in her gilded prep school inflections. Yeah, we do. Don't worry about it. Philip palmed the back of his neck. Well, sort of. <laughs> we have a permit allowing us to access the land here. The mansion's sort of a collateral benefit. Okay. So we don't have a name, began Fias, counting sins on his fingers. We don't actually have a permit to be here. But we have booze, food, sleeping bags, a youthful compulsion to do stupid shit. And a hunger for a good ghost story, said Nadia. The late light did beautiful things to her skin, burnished her in gold. What is the scoop on the mansion anyway? I don't know, Philip said. The sing-song timber of his voice familiar, the sound of it, like a coyote lying about where he left the sun. But rumor has it that this was once supposed to be the site of a beautiful wedding. Unfortunately, the groom never showed up. He died along the way. <laughs> if you die, said Nadia, pinching a curd of Fias's waist between her fingers, I'm going to marry Philip instead, just so you know. Philip smiled at a proclamation like he'd heard it ten times before from ten thousand women, knew every syllable was meant, would already be true if it weren't for fraternal bonds, and I was the only one who saw how Fias's answering smile wouldn't climb to his eyes. I don't think you're allowed to marry your priest, Fias said, easy as an eating. But if you have to get a replacement, I'd rather you pick cat. Ugh, I said, not my type. A rather dying old maid. No offense. Said Nadia. Don't take it. Anyway, said Philip, with a clearing of his throat. The bride took her abandonment and shrine and told her wedding guests to bury her in the foundation of the house. Alive? I whispered. I thought of a girl holding both hands to her mouth, swallowing air and then dirt, her hair and the hems of her wedding dress becoming heavier with every shovel's worth of soil to come down. Alive, said Philip. She said she had promised to wait for him and she would. She'd keep the house standing until his ghost finally came home. Silence lays itself to rest along the house and upon our tongue. And every year after that, they buried a new girl in the walls, said Philip. Why? Started Fies startling somehow at this revelation. The fuck would they do that? <laughs> because it gets lonely down in the dirt, Philip continued. Why well, held my tongue to the steeple of my mouth? Why do you think there are so many stories of ghosts trying to get people to kill themselves? Because they miss having someone there, someone warm. It doesn't matter how many corpses are lying in the soil with them, it doesn't, it's not the same. The dead miss the sun. It's dark down there. Dabs. Nadia walked a hand along Fias's arm, a gesture that said, look, you have to understand that this belongs to me. Her eyes found mine, liquid and unkind. In that instant, I wanted badly to tell her again, 
that the past was buried in poor choices. You couldn't get Fias and I back together for bourbon enough to brine New Orleans. But that wasn't the point. That's pretty fucking metal. We'll be fine. Freshly certified man at the club right here. Philip pounded his sternum with a fist, laughing, and Nadia immediately kissed Fias in answer. He took her knuckles then to his mouth, graced each of them with his lips in turn. I stared at the skins of woven straw attaching the floors, shuddered despite myself. I was abruptly dumbstruck by a profound curiosity. How many dead and dismembered women laid, folded in these walls and under these floors in the rafters that ripped the ceiling and along those broad steps barely visible in the murk? Tradition insists the offerings be buried alive, able to breathe and bargain through the process, their funerary garments debased by shit, piss, and whatever other fluids which trude upon the crusts of death. I couldn't shake the idea of an eminently practical family, one that understood the bone wouldn't rot where wood might, ordering their workers to stack girls like bricks, arms here, legs there, a vein of skulls wefted into the manor's framing, insurance against a time when traditional architecture might fail. Might as well. They were here for the long haul. One day these doors would open and wedding guests would pour through, and there would be a marriage come to capitalism or modern civilization. The house would wait forever until it happened. One girl each year. 206 bones times a thousand years, more than enough calcium to keep this house standing until the stars ate themselves clean, picked the sinew from their own shining bones. All for one girl as she waited and waited and waited, alone in the dirt and the dark. Cat? I blink free of my fugue. Fingers clench around my wrist. I'm okay. You sure? said Philip, cocking a worried look, hair haloed by slant of owl light. You don't look like you're fine. Sorry. Is it? Leave it, I said softly, the joy gone out of his expression, replaced by concern, a twitch, a protective anger to carry to his teeth, his lips peeling back. I wagged my head, smoothed out his mouth. It's fine. Everything's fine. Ken knows we're here, she needs us. The look of my face must have been a sight to see because Philip flinched and ducked out of the room, mumbling about mistakes, cheeks blotching. I ran through my to-do list thrice, counted out chores, precautions, a thousand trivialities until order restored itself by way of monotony. I glanced over, breathing easy again. To see Fias and Nadia bent together like congregants, a steeple made of their bodies, foreheads touching. It was impossible to miss the cue. Exit, stage anywhere. So I followed the shutter pop of Philip's new camera to where he stood in an antechamber, painted by the evening penumbra, dust colors, gold and pink. A moting of dust spiraled in the damp air, glinting palely where particles caught in the cooling sun. At some point, the roof here had fissured, letting the weather slop through. 
The flooring underneath was rotten, green where the mold and the ferns and the whorls of thick moss had taken root in the mud. Sorry. I shrugged. There were wildflowers by the lungfuls swelling at Philip's feet. That's fine. His eyebrows went up. A bird shrilled its laughter. Through the wound in the roof, I saw a flash of ambergris and tanzanite, the teal of a feathered throat. Philip scratched a Rembrandt in high definition. Cat. You were just worried about friend. It happens here, but I'm not going to throw myself off a building because you were trying to be nice. That's not how it works. I swallowed. Okay, just tell me what you need, all right? I don't, I, I don't always know the right things to say. I mean, I'm okay at some things, but like women, I thought, like being a star, being loved, being hungered for. Philip excelled the exciting one, particularly the kind that tottered on the border of worship. Small wonder he was so inept at compassion sometimes. Every religion is a one-way relationship. To our right, a half-open fusuma, the opaque panels stood floor to ceiling, slid noiselessly on its rail when I pushed, that opened into a garden. A neat square of emerald bracketed by verandas, an algae swallowed pool at its heart. The foliage crawled with red higanbana, dead men's flowers. I ran my fingers through my hair. I was suddenly, incredibly exhausted. And the thought of having to exorcise Philip's guilt again to assure him that he wasn't a bad man nauseated me. In lieu of comfort, I grew up with nanities. When did you date Nadia? Was it after a while we were seeing each other? Cat? A laugh startled from him. I don't mean this as an accusation. It doesn't matter. I was just wondering. I stroked a finger along the bamboo lattice, came out of dust, decomposing plant material, an oiliness that I couldn't place. Uh, about a month after, but we weren't exclusive or anything. You never did like the exclusive thing, no. That's not that. So much sincerity in those gold blue eyes, crowns of honey around black pupils. It's just, we were kids. We're still kids. Those relationships won't last us into adulthood. Most of them won't. Not yet, not yet that That's something else. Anyway, when I'm older, I'll settle down. But these are the best years of my life, and I don't want to waste them shackled to a person I won't like at 30. His gaze became pleading. You understand, right? Said Philip, yearning for affirmation. I'm just wondering if I noticed you two were together. He still. That's on Nadia to tell him, not me. I considered my next word. In case he doesn't know, I feel like you should make it a point to pretend that you two weren't ever an item. Gillis replied, why? I thought of Fias and his teeth, bared and blunt and bitter. Fias might not like suddenly finding out he slept with his fiancee. He's an adult and male. He's not going to care about someone's sexual history. <laughs> Very safe and sorry, Philip. I paused. Also, fuck you. Fias is an adult who can make his own decisions, but you're a kid who shouldn't commit yet. Hey, 
People make sure at different speeds. Jesus, fine. Just make sure you don't let Fias know you used to sleep with his wife to be okay. Philip put his hands out, his blunt nails grazing a fold of my shirt. For you, I wove my shoulder away. Don't do that. Something below the cross beams of my lowest ribs clenched as I absorbed him, the chest girl of his face and silhouette, his faultless smile. Nothing ever said no to those cheekbones. You know you're supposed to ask, sorry, I forgot. Glib is the first word out of babe's milk-wet mouth, one shoulder raised and dropped. My gaze drifted, moved until it came to a rest on the Fusuma. There were images of marketplaces teeming with black-lit housewives, raccoons darting between. I squinted. No, not raccoons. Tanuki with scrotums dragging behind him, someone even painted the fine hairs, had made it a point to emphasize how the testicles sat in their goony sacks of tanned skin. Somehow the profanity of the art repulsed me less than the undergrowth in which Philip stood. The ferns grew knee-high, curled against his calves like vegetable cats. So, how many ghosts do you think you were going to find? Philip said, warming to the thought of small talk, his grin like a politician's smile beaming up from the cover of GQ, only better because it was actually sincere, larger than life, yet still intrinsically boy next door. At least one. I thought about corpses. I thought about how many girls were buried beneath us, foreheads together, bodies fused, and cat's cradle, curled legs, and clutching arms. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's probably like queen of the dam or something. I wonder what she'll look like. Mm -hmm. He undulated his arms through the air, molding his palms through the voluptuous rise and dip of an imaginary cellar. Bet she's hot. A portraiture of the deceased, the owner of that voice, rose into focus in my mind's eye. A round face, wide at the cordillera of her cheekbones, but otherwise gaunt. The flesh whittled by hunger and worm, her complexion waxen, hair waterfalling, ragged and black, still impaled in places by sharp golden pins. I don't think it can be hot after so many years dead. Have some imagination. Sure, the corporeal body might have suffered from the decomposition, but her spiritual manifestation is probably something else. You're crass, Philip. My laugh sounded wet, thick, false, hoarse. But Philip didn't know this, grinning white. I couldn't stop thinking about what might have been under his feet. Just a hot-blooded male, he confessed, doing what hot-blooded males do. Cute. The edge of a lip went up further than the moor. Promise me I'll rein it in. I promise I'll try. He fisted a hand and placed it over his heart, an admiral salute, spine and shoulders lancing straight. That grin again, that cocksure state fund a presidential candidate smart. Talk to the hand. I threw a raised palm in his direction and looked back to the Fusuma. It wasn't just Hanuki on exhibit. There were other yokai. It was all yokai, a veritable parade. Kitsune in elaborate clothing, tails curling with questions, 
Ningyo crawling from the jeweled sea, Kappa and towering Oni negotiating for baskets heaped with cucumbers. Everywhere, every last brush-painted face in sight, even the housewives, some with eyes, some Oni with lips, some a gaping smile slice into place, every last one of them, all of them, yokai. Just trying to make it laugh, cat. that's all, that's what he said. He swept his fringe from his eyes and palmed his chest with both hands. Expression become grotesque with false despair. You wound me. Your ego wounds you. I was just his instrument. And he laughed then, like it didn't matter. Like it couldn't matter, not for him, not error. Not when so much of the world waited eager to type him everything for a kiss. Philip wouldn't pauper himself for grudge, not the blessed largest of a straight white rich boy life. You're good people, cat. You know that, right? Good people deserve happiness. I think that's overstating things, I told him, with a half smile for a tip. However tedious the best wishes, I couldn't fault his intent. More than anything else, I was tired. Tired of being unhappy, and even more tired of feeling sorry for the fact I was unhappy. It was easier to agree than it was to argue, what with the immovable object that was Philip's faith in his worldview. But I appreciate the sentiment. I heard a voice, a whisper so quiet, the cerebrum wouldn't acknowledge its receipt. The words were drowned by the reaver of Fias's voice calling, an afterimage, an impression of teeth on skin. We exited the room, the future falling into place behind us, like of a wedding veil, a morning call, like froth on the lip of a bride drowned on soil. Also, this is really low in my next killing <laughs> So that'll be out in 2021, yeah. <coughs> early 2021, we think. And uh, take a break, have some drinks, and we'll be back in about 10 minutes. Welcome back to the second half of our reading series tonight. And our next reader is Richard Cadry, <laughs> who is the New York Times best-selling author of the Sandman Slim Dark Urban Fantasy series. Sandman Slim was included in Amazon's 100 science fiction and fantasy books to read in a lifetime. You can read a lot more than that. <laughs> and is in production as a feature film. Some of Cadry's other books include The Grand Dark, which he's reading from, The Everything Box, Hollywood Dead, and Butcher Bird. In, in comics, he's written for Heavy Metal, Lucifer, and Hellblazer. He's currently partnered with Winterlight Productions for his, for his original horror screenplay, Dark West. Please welcome Richard Cadry. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks for coming out tonight. Is this thing, how's that? Can you hear me now? All right. Thank you for coming out tonight. I'm going to read two sections of uh, The Grand Dark. Um, part of the opening, and then we're going to skip ahead to um, where this man's shitty life gets to next. So, uh, 
we'll start out slow. The Great War was over, but everyone knew that a new war was coming, and it drove the city a little mad. Before dawn, Largo Morden pe pedaled his bicycle through the nearly deserted streets of Lower Prajava. It was exactly one week since his 21st birthday. Fog from the nearby bay and smoke from the armaments factory left the center of the city looking like a flat, ashen mirage. As Largo sped over the ore bridge, the edges of Gothic office buildings, dwellings, and cafes coalesced into view. Streetcars gliding atop silent magnetic trails in the street, and above, old church spires, shadowy outlines a moment before, solidified and then were gone. At the bottom of the bridge, where Krahe Vale crossed Tumstrasse, a line of Black Mara's delivery automata sat waiting for the signal crossing to change. Some of the larger contraptions, the Black Widows carrying machine parts for the factory, resembled wrought iron spiders the size of pushcarts, while the little tea and breakfast Maras were wooden bread boxes decorated with wings and the carvings of flying women. Largo was tempted to veer into the line of machines and kick over one or two of the smaller ones. He knew that someday, soon, the Maras were going to put human couriers like him out of business. Each time he thought about it, a little wave of panic bubbled up from his stomach because, aside from a strong pair of legs, the only things Largo possessed that were worth money were his bicycle and an encyclopedic knowledge of every street and alley in the city. To Largo's surprise, while the crossing signal still read halt, one of the little winged bread boxes crept past the other Maras and whirred quietly into Krahe Vale. With a mechanical rumble, a squat armored juggernaut carrying soldiers sped around the corner and crushed the bed red bread box under its metal treads without slowing. All that was left of the little carrier was a small motor sputtering blue sparks, splinters, and a flattened sandwich. Largo hadn't eaten for a day, and the sight of food made him hungry. Still, he smiled. Indeed, the Black Maras had put him out of business one day, but not today, and not for many days to come. When the signal clicked to proceed, he guided his bicycle through the, rem the remains left of the intersection, as the rest of the automata split up, carrying their goods all over Lower Prajava. The clock over the Great Triumphal Square, renamed a pack, perhaps a bit too optimistically after the war, showed that it was just a few minutes before six. Largo had spent far too long in bed that morning with Remy, his lover, but it was so hard to leave her. He bent over his handlebars, pedaling faster, knowing all too well that being late for the beginning of the work week was, <clears throat> was a good way to have hair bronchus snapping at you until Friday. Worse, it could result in a humiliating dismissal. The edges of the plaza were coming to life. Bakers laid out loaves and pies and windows of their shops. The newspaper kiosk attendants by the, by the underground tram station cut, over, cut open piles of tabloid yellow sheets full of political intrigues and reports of the previous night's murders. All-night revelers wandered through the square, still jubilantly drunk from the evening before. Along the gutters, purring, wig, purring pig-like chimeras cleared the street of trash by devouring it. Beyond the edges of the plaza, prostitutes flirted with men in strange masks made of steel and leather, iron dandies, <clears throat> is what they were called, but never where they could hear it. They were war veterans, and considered too disfigured to be glimpsed by the city's ordinary citizens, Largo among them. 
He'd heard that if you stared too long at a dandy, he'd rip his mask off, giving you a good look at his mutilated face. Seeing a dandy that way was considered bad luck. Bad luck or not, the truth was that Largo didn't want to see what was under the mask, or think about the wounds or the war itself. He just put his head down, pedal harder, and arrived panting at the courier service as the plaza clock struck six. Dropping his bicycle next to the other couriers, Largo ran up the office stairs and made it inside before the head dispatcher, Herr Branca, noticed his tardiness. He lingered at the back behind the other messengers so that a supervisor wouldn't see him sweating. Herr Branca was a burly man, one of the strange sort who seemed to have been born old. None of the couriers knew his age, but depending on the season and whether he'd shaved or not, they guessed it to be anywhere from 30 to 60. He wore the same thing every day, pinstripe pants, matching vest, and a white shirt with an old-fashioned starched collar that he left open except when visiting their superiors. The bottom button of the vest was always missing. This can only mean one of two things, that Herr Branca was an eccentric who cut the bottom button off all his vests, or that a second vest was beyond his means. No one of the service took Branca for an eccentric, so that had to mean that their supervisor was so poorly paid that his choice in clothes was no better than the courier's. This possibility always depressed Largo. He liked being a courier, but if Herr Branca was his future, perhaps it was time to make other plans. But what? Different futures weren't easy to come by in Lower Pajava. As he did every morning, Branca leaned heavily on a standing desk, shouting names and the addresses where couriers were to go, with old, while old battered Maras handed them whatever documents or parcels they were to deliver. When Branca had called most of the morning's deliveries and the room was nearly empty, Parvulesco, Largo's closest friend at the service, gave him a worried look as he carried a parcel out the door. Largo shrugged. Maybe Branco had seen him come in late and was about to give him a good talking to. There was nothing to do but wait and endure whatever was coming. Parvulescu, ma Parvulescu mouthed, good luck, before heading out. Soon, everyone else had been giving their assignment, and it was just Largo and Herr Branca. The supervisor didn't look up for two or three minutes as he took his time filling out small piles of paper. As the seconds ticked by, Largo imagined all sorts of scenarios. A simple dressing down, having his pay docked, maybe he'd even be fired. He stood still, hoping not to draw attention to himself, but after a couple of more minutes passed, he couldn't stand it anymore. He cleared his throat. Do you have a cold, Largo? said Herr Branca. If so, kindly keep your distance, as it would be inconvenient for me to be ill at this time. He spoke quietly. Branca had always, always spoke quietly, no matter what the topic or circumstance. The couriers joked that if he were an executioner, he'd never know he was there until your head was on the ground. No, sir, it's nothing like that. I was just wondering if, if I'd noticed that you came in late, then hide at the back like a cockroach from the light. <clears throat> well, yes, Largo, said Largo, something like that. Herr Branca looked up wearily. Rest easy, Largo. While you were tardy and a bit more insectile than your <clears throat> in your earlier behavior, you're not going to be fired. In fact, you're being promoted. Largo frowned, afraid he'd misheard his supervisor. Promoted? Largo set down his pen and sighed. You're aware of the word, aren't you? It's a verb meaning to advance in rank. 
<laughs> to assign to a higher position. Must I explain it further? No, sir. It's just that it's a bit unexpected. Quite. Especially considering your less than cordial relationship with the clock. That's going to have to stop. Do you understand me? This promotion brings new responsibilities and promise is one of them. Can you handle that? Yes, sir. I can. Very good. Now stop cowering at the back of the room and come up here so I can explain the lofty position to which you have ascended. Largo was still very wary as he approached Herr Bronca's desk, waiting to find out if the promotion was a mistake or a cruel joke his supervisor had made before he was going to fire him. Bronco was looking over more pathers when he reached the desk, and once more Largo couldn't help himself. Why? Why the promotion or why you, said Bronco without looking up. Both, I guess. Did you happen to notice that Koenig wasn't here this morning? Koenig was the company's chief corrigor, a han tall, handsome man just a few years older than Largo. No, sir, I didn't. Bronco tugged at his collar. I didn't expect so. But it's true nevertheless. He wasn't with us, and it's likely you won't see him again, or here, or anywhere else. He's been arrested by the Nachtvogel. Largo didn't say anything for a moment, not sure whether Bronco was playing him for a fool. Koenig was a nobody, as well as, you know, just like the other couriers in the company. Why would the secret police take away a nobody? You saw it happen? I mean... They arrested him here? Largo, Bronca nodded, right where you're standing now. Largo looked at the floor, not sure what he was expecting to see. Then, feeling foolish, looked back at Bronca. I don't understand. What would the Nachtvogel want with Koenig? I have no idea, because I didn't ask. An attitude I advise you to emulate should you ever find yourself face to face with them. You've been given a rare opportunity, Largo. Use it wisely. Largo nodded, his earlier fear giving away to feelings of guilt at his good fortune. Good fortune that came at the back of, well, not a friend, but someone like him at least, someone he knew and moreover had nothing against. He felt a little queasy, but then he straightened. Bronco was right. This was an opportunity, and a promotion would mean more money in his pocket. With luck, it would be enough that he wouldn't have to feel hungry again at the sight of a crushed sandwich in the middle of the street. He thought of Remy, and his mood lightened slightly. He couldn't wait to tell her about his good fortune. Bronco leaned on his desk to get closer to Largo. When he spoke, his voice was quiet. The reason I've told you all this was to impress upon you the importance of your new position. It's a great embarrassment for the company to have one of its trusted employees hauled away in chains. If the news got out, it would be very bad for business. Therefore. We must redouble our efforts and do everything we can to keep up with the company's good name. Do you know why? Because we're grateful to them for the opportunities they've given us? Don't be naive. Bronca tapped the pen on his desk. It's because you and I are utterly disposable. Never forget that. I won't, sir. Good. Now, welcome to your new position, Chief Courier. Does the promotion mean I'll be spending more time in the office? Bronco let out a grunting laugh. God help us if it did. <laughs> no, you'll continue your normal duties, making deliveries and picking up goods, but you'll be doing it in parts of this city that you're not used to, including some of the most prosperous districts. 
That's why I chose you. None of this other rabble. None of this other rabble here, no lower Prajava as well. He paused for a moment and said, Also, you seem like a genu gen generally honest, which is very important. Some of the parcels and documents you'll be carrying will be worth considerable amounts of money. Can I count on you to do your job honorably and intelligently? Largo was a little shocked by the question. He'd never been asked anything like it before. Well, yes, sir, of course, he said. Good. I thought so. Here are some forms for you to sign to make your promotion official. He handed Largo a stack of papers, then dropped a leather box about ten inches long on top. And here is a new tool for your job. With luck, you'll never need to use it. Largo took the papers to a nearby table, set them down, and picked up the box. Turning it over in his hands, he found a small brass lock. With a little pressure, it popped open. At first, Largo wasn't sure what he was looking at. It was made of a dull gray metal. There were holes in it that were clearly meant for his fingers. He put them in and felt a sort of metal grip against his palm, where the rounded loops covered his knuckles, and they were studded in spikes. He pulled the strange object the rest of the way out of the box. It was a knife, a trench knife from the war with blood channels down the blade and brass knuckles over the hand. Largo looked at Herr Branca. Sir? His supervisor glanced at him. Well, you wear in a harness under your coat. Understand, with every job comes certain liabilities. Your promotion will bring you new respect and a larger salary. Unfortunately, it will also make you a target. Oh, Largo said. He hesitated for a moment, not liking the word. However, he, took off, he shook off the feeling and reached back into the box, pulling out a tangle of worn leather straps and clasps. The harness, he guessed. I, I don't know how to put it on. The old man nodded. I'll show you. Welcome to your future, Largo. Uh, we're going to skip ahead a bit. Largo has a beautiful girlfriend, an actress named Remy, who performs at the Grand Dark. The Grand Dark is a Grand Guignol sort of theater. They perform murders, um, usually political ones, a lot of them from the uh, newspapers of the day. She goes missing, and Largo is accused of her murder. He's arrested and put under watch by um, the Nachtvogel. But he learns certain strange facts and gets the idea that Remy is in fact a slave in High Prajava, which was destroyed during the war as nothing but a wasteland full of plague bombs. So he decides to lose his uh, minders and go looking for her. In this section, through a friend, he found his way onto a smuggler's submarine. And this is the end of that section, and we're going forward. He's, um, the, the uh, captain of the submarine was a man named Steinmetz. And this is them um, getting to High Prashava. Largo went to his cap cabin and locked himself inside. He checked over everything he'd bought with him, money, his knife, Renier's glove, gun, morphia. He wished he thought to bring a flashlight. Hope Rajava was probably going to be on the dim side, and he didn't want to stumble around blind. He hoped the storm had passed. That would give the moon a chance to come out. 
But moon or not, flashlight or not, he was almost there. Almost to Remy. Despite the pain in his leg and the fear that was always at the back of his thoughts, he hadn't felt so excited in days. After a little more than an hour, someone knocked on his door. Steinmetz came in and tapped the clock bolted to the wall of the cabin. We're here. You have 18 hours to do whatever the hell you want. If you're not back on that time, friend of Rainier's or not, we're going to leave you. Understand? I understand, said Largo. The thing is, I, I don't have a watch. Steinmetz said, yeah, Rainier said you might not. He pulled a fistful of watches from his pocket and dropped them <laughs> and dropped them on the bunk. Take your pick. Largo went through the pile, not sure what he was looking for. He said, are all these some dead men? Steinmetz leaned against the cabin door. They're not all men's, and yes. <laughs> Largo selected a watch and put it on. He followed Steinmetz forward and climbed out of the U-boat after him. Every bit of his hope died. Largo had known in abstract that Hyperjava would be a ruin, but seeing it with his own eyes, one word came to mind. Wasteland. The U-boat was docked at a ramshackle pier on a river cove, hidden from the patrols in the bay. The fresh air was a shock to his system after the stink of the submarine. It was also cold, with a chill wind blowing in from the bay. Even in his heavy coat, Largo shivered. He could hear voices in the sound of machinery, but he could see very little in the pitch dark, just vague hints of humans and machines. Then the moon emerged from behind a cloud, and High Prajava briefly came into focus. Beyond the wharf area lay a barren expanse of mud and incinerated buildings that jutted from a frozen earth at mad angles. When the wind changed, and blew from inland, it brought the scent of wet earth, but also that of a vast rot, like offal in, a, in the butcher's quarter. Below them, the wharf, Steinmetz's man fanned out in all directions, each of them wearing a rubber protective suit. Steinmetz waited on the deck. A pretty sight, isn't it? Largo pulled his coat tighter around him. It, it isn't all how I imagined. What did you think it would be? Well, I don't know. Bombs hit some buildings where I live now, and I thought it would be like that. I know, broken windows, doors blown out, but still a city? Yes, said Largo. Welcome to the war, my friend, with a boot that grinds everything to dust. The clouds slid back behind in front of the moon. Now you can't see any. Now he couldn't see anything. I should have bought a flashlight. They're not allowed, said Steinmetz. Offshore patrols can spot them. Well, then how do I get around? Steinmetz put on a set of goggles and then handed Largo a pair. Try these. Largo was blinded for a few seconds by a strange yellow light. When his vision adjusted, he could see the bustling wharf and the waste beyond, lit like the evening in an eerie amber glow. What are these, he said. There's wee, tiny chimeras inside. They transform darkness into light, just as long as their food lasts. And how long is that? Guess. Eighteen hours? Steinmetz nodded. If you miss the pickup, you won't just be stuck here. You'll be blind. Largo shivered in the cold, imagining what it would be like to hunker down in the ruins of High Prashaba until he could buy his way onto another boat. I, I won't be late. Good. Take this, too. Steinmetz 
handed Largo a collapsible telescope and a sheet of paper. Spyglass might help. Used to belong to Rainier. You can take it back to him. I will, said Largo. Then, where do they dig up things to sell in Lower Pajava? Things that I'd find in the Midden. Steinmetz said, well, there are different crews looking for different things. That paper is a rough map of all the crews I know about. Mind you, I've never been out, of, out in deep plague country, but I'm told the map is generally accurate. Just generally accurate? It's what I have. Take it or leave it. I'll, I'll take anything right now. Steinmetz unfolded the map and pointed northeast of the wharf. You want to start with the curio hunters, huh? Follow the road on the right. There's two or three hills beyond. Maybe four. Largo looked at the map. He couldn't read it easily in the light from the goggles. But the smuggler had already pulled on his hood and joined his men below, so Largo couldn't ask questions. He folded the map carefully and put it inside his coat pocket. Then he started up the road on his right. It wasn't three hills to the curio hunters. It wasn't four. After six hills and more than an hour of walking, he wondered if he was already lost. After the seventh hill, he was sure of it. From time to time, the mud gave way to the cracked surface of a ruined boulevard. Hollow, broken buildings and skeletal trees loomed like screaming faces on either side of the road. Most of the time, though, he was surrounded by indefinable shapes sunk in the dirty ooze or blasted into so many pieces they were unrecognizable. The endless wet and muck was a surprise. Largo was still wearing his city shoes. They quickly filled with freezing mud, weighing him down and making each step a chore. His right leg began to ache again. It was over the eighth hill that he finally saw movement in the distance. Excited, Largo ran down a low cut beside a collapsed cathedral and knelt down what, behind what looked like a, the top of a broken juggernaut. He watched, the crowd, he watched the distant scene for several minutes using Rainier's telescope. Approximately 20 people in protective suits dug in the mud at the base of what looked like the ruins of an elegant high-rise. Nearby, immense piles of furniture, heaps of sofas, jumbles of bed frames, chairs, and ebony tables. On the sides were smaller masses of clocks, vases, clothing, and jewelry. Paintings were stacked next to a museum's worth of marble statues. The curio clerk, excuse me, the curio crew worked steadily, and it looked like as if they were doing it with nothing more than shovels. The thought of that was something strangely admirable to Largo. The sheer force of will it must take to work in, by hand in these conditions. It's amazing. Several large dog-like chimeras, as big as Baron Hellsworth, Kara, the war dog, sniffed around the edges of the camp, stopping only to dig in the ground or at the side of a building. When one of them did, when one of them did workers would go over to see what they'd found. None of the chimeras had any protective clothing. Largo noticed that a few of the workers had taken off their protective masks and were digging bareheaded. He wondered if they took morphia as a cure against the plague or if they were simply resigned to their fate as victims. Again, he was struck by the peculiar courage of the crew. With all the goods they'd accumulated, if Remy was there, would they be willing to give her up? What if, he had bought their, what if he bought their freedom but didn't have any money left for Steinmetz? He, thought, he put the thought out of his mind for the moment. Largo watched the curio hunters for half an hour, scanning first the workers who'd removed their masks, then the ones who were still fully in their suits. 
but he didn't spot any slaves. The crew seemed to work together fairly well, he thought. No one was brutalized or punished. In fact, he saw easy conversation and even some laughter between the workers. Maybe the slaves are inside the building. That must be the most dangerous area. That possibility presented a whole new set of problems. He couldn't see into the building with the telescope, so how could he find any slaves without going in himself? There's no choice, Largo thought. I'll have to go in there through the back entrance. He went around to the rear of the building in a low crouch. Once he was there, he scanned the scene with the telescope. It was similar to what he'd seen out front, 15 or 20 workers digging through the ruins, but no one was beaten or treated badly. No way to get in there. Maybe they'll get lucky on the far side of the building. Largo moved quickly, still crouching, stopping every few yards to scan the work area. It took longer than he'd hoped to get around to the side of the high-rise. Landscape was full of deep bomb craters and heaps of debris, all of which he had to circle around or risk being seen. As he went, he wondered what to do if he found Remy. It would be best if, they could, if he could sneak her out, but with so many workers, that seemed an unlikely solution. In that case, he'd have to bribe some of the scavengers. He was moving around the rim of a crater that had blasted away part of a paved road when his back erupted in pain and he went face down on the pavement. Warm blood trickled down his cheek where he'd cut his face on a paving stone. He lay there stunned for a moment before someone flipped him over onto his back. The man holding a knife to his throat wasn't wearing a protective mask. However, he was wearing a dented helmet smeared with dry mud. Officers had worn the similar ridiculous spiked helmets during the war. Largo wondered if the man had found it in the ruins or stolen it off a corpse. The man's face was so creased with dirt that it was impossible to guess his age. He was missing most of his front teeth. Who the fuck are you? He said. I'm, I'm Largo and I'm not looking for trouble. What crew are you with? I'm not with a crew. I'm just looking for someone. The curio hunter pressed the knife harder against Largo's throat. Looking for someone? Who? A woman. They're, um, um, she's young and pretty. Got plenty of women in the crew, though none I'd call pretty. Well, not in your crew. I'm, I'm looking for slaves. That seemed to puzzle the curio hunter, and for a moment he lessened the pressure on the knife. What fucking slaves are you talking about? The slaves. The ones you bring in from Lower Pajava to dig up treasure. The hunter smiled and a drop of saliva fell from the gap in his teeth. Are you from the city? Yes, said Largo. I'm looking for a couple of friends. The hunter repositioned the knife to the side so it wasn't in Largo's throat, but just the tip. I'll tell you something, city man. We're professionals here. You ain't got time for slaves or blue noses. Now answer my next question, truthful, because this means your life. You got any money? Yes. The hunter made a grasping gesture with his free hand. Give it to me. It's inside my coat. Then give it slow. Largo took the remaining bills from the inside pocket of his coat and gave them to the hunter, who looked them over and put them in the pocket of his protective suit. It's your lucky day, city man. This is just enough to let you off. Now, you want slave? You go by the metalworks. Those fucks will do anything to anyone. Where are they? The hunter pointed to the west with his knife. Largo looked to where he was pointing and saw only a flat, endless mire. 
Uh, I'm lost. Is there a road around to the metalworks? Of course. I'm not telling you where. You're so anxious. You go that way. Largo didn't speak. The hunter lit Largo up and jammed the knife against his ribs. Get walking. You got a long way to go. Largo walked backward for a few yards, breaking every rule he'd grown up with. Yes, he thought, walking this way made him look weak and a bit ridiculous. But he had the sense that the old rules might not apply out here. Who cared if you looked brave or foolish here at the end of the world? All that mattered was survival. However, you could manage it. He retraced his steps around the building. It went a lot faster this time since he wasn't trying to hide, but he had no idea where to take the hunter's word for it or not, and he wasn't in any position to argue the point. The best part about heading to the metalworks, he thought, was that it would put a lot of distance between him and the curio hunter. Lago checked his map as he started across the mile-wide field of ruins. Wiping the mud from the watch Steinmetz had given him, he checked the time. Within four hours had passed, and he had nothing to show for it. He wanted to run across the wet field, but knew he had to be careful. There might be more bomb craters, and the last thing he wanted to do was fall and hurt his knee again, or drown before he found Remy. And uh, I think we'll leave it there. Thank you. Is that officially published yet? Yes, it's been out for about six months. Oh, okay. Yeah, what is this stuff? There's bags here. Anyway, uh, thank you for coming, and I hope we'll, you'll uh, hang out for a while and come next month. Thank you. You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB bar. I'm Rajan Khanna. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio. And always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.